Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 167. We are long overdue for a reader slash listener Q&A. Um, the last one was actually back in March, so we've been stockpiling some, some questions from our audience. And so we've got three things that we're going to cover today. I'm going to talk about um, the role of swimming for pitchers. We're going to talk about core muscle surgeries, um, also known as sports hernia repairs. And then we're going to talk about uh, you know kind of the overarching theme of overtraining. Training. And what we realize as part of that discussion is that it's actually overload, overreaching, overtraining. There's a lot of things that you have to consider as you make those differentiations. So hopefully there's a little something for everybody in this episode. And just a friendly reminder, if you are interested in submitting a question, we always love to hear from our readers so that we can drive content that is appropriate for you and, and helps you to get where you need to be. You can submit your questions to elite baseball podcast at gmail.com or just reach out to us via social media and hopefully we'll get something included for you. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it can be difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can often wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where AG1 can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. That's why I use it daily, as do several of my family members, and we recommend it to a lot of our top athletes. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet to support energy, focus, digestion, and recovery. And this can all happen for less than $3 per day and without taking multiple products. While most nutritional supplements come to market and stay stagnant, AG1 continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing over 50 improvements in the last decade alone. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best tasting nutrition habit on the planet. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it'll work for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar per serving. They put 75 ingredients to the rigorous NSF certification test to come up with a safe formula that's trusted by some of the world's top athletes, including many of our own at Cressy Sports Performance. Right now, AG1 is giving our listeners a special offer of 10 free travel packets with their first purchase. Just head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim this special offer. These travel packets are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health while you're traveling for games, training, or simply on the go. They can be great counterbalance to the less than ideal on the road food options that are out there for a lot of our traveling baseball players. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance of getting nutrient diversity, head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy to get 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. You won't regret it. <laughs> 
We are going to get right to it. Um, our first question is, what do you think about swimming between starts for pitchers? And what's really interesting about this question is I feel like it comes in waves where I'll hear it three or four times in a week and then I won't hear about it for a couple months. So I, I think it has a lot to do with what people see on social media or whatever they may uh, perceive just from their conversations with one specific coach who's really um, aligned with it. So um, I'm not adamantly against it, but I'm definitely not a raving fan for it. And I'll, and I'll talk about why. Um, really, my concern concerns are two-pronged. So first, there's an energy system slash CNS fatigue um, concern. And then there's also a musculoskeletal slash biomechanical, um, you know, kind of concern here as well. Um, so let's talk about both of them. And, and really the first uh, considerations with respect to energy systems development and central nervous system fatigue is that we, we always try to build our between start model around a high low method. So there should be high stress uh, periods in it and there should be low stress periods. And we try to avoid doing in, you know, a five, six or seven day rotation is avoid a lot of time right in the middle. Um, because we know baseball is obviously a, a heavy speed and power, um, you know, driven sport where it's max effort burst, whether that's a pitch, a swing or stealing a base. And very rarely is it, you know, kind of middle of the road effort. It's not like soccer where maybe you run fast for four seconds and then you can just kind of jog lightly for a period. It's not like hockey where you just go all out crazy for 60 to 90 seconds. Um, it's very different. So our, our energy systems development really needs to follow this high low model. So what that means is things need to be really intense or they need to be really light. And I think where people get into trouble is when they start adding a lot of middle of the road stuff. What's that? That's gassers. That's poles. That's a lot of runs in kind of this 75 to 85% of their max heart rate zone. And so that's the first thing I worry about is that people put swimming in because they think it's going to be a, you know, a good strategy for optimizing recovery. And it absolutely can be. But the concern, as is the case with a lot of running initiatives, things like that, is that the intensity can creep up and all of a sudden before you know it, it's actually interfering with your ability to bounce back between starts. And we know that's, you know, it's a little bit important on a seven day rotation in high school and college, but the second pitcher starts shifting to six day rotations and, and definitely five day rotations, really every minute matters in those, those kind of four down days between start and your high is, is always going to be dictated by your game appearance, where if you go out and you throw 95 pitches at, you know, max effort, you, you really also need to find a period of time between then and your next start where you're going to get, um, you know, a significant effort to throw a bullpen, to get some strength training initiatives in, to do some speeds slash power development. And all of a sudden you, you recognize that if this swimming is going to take place, it really needs to be at a low intensity. It needs to have quite a bit of variety. So it's not reaffirming a lot of imbalances. We'll talk about that in a second. So the number one consideration I would say on this front is remember that pitchers are generally not going to be good swimmers. So the intensity can really sneak up on them and it can leave them in a heart rate zone and muscular insertion zone that doesn't really um, benefit recovery or create a useful strength and power adaptation. Um, it's also obviously very hard to monitor. Like you're not going to really be able to hop into a pool with a heart rate monitor. It's really hard to perceive, you know, uh, similar to like what you get on a treadmill, right? You can, you know, you know, you're working at a light enough intensity if you can actually, you know, uh, you know, carry a conversation, same thing with mobility service. It's hard to do that in a pool. Um, so it's some of the same concerns I've, like I said, I've had with distance running initiatives, gassers, poles, things like that is we just need to make sure the intensity doesn't get too high. Otherwise, you know, it, it can be a really good, you know, approach. So if it's just treading water, moving around in the pool, I think that can be excellent. Um, 
know, to the speak to the the musculoskeletal slash biomechanical perspectives, just remember that swimmers have some of the most dysfunctional upper extremities, you know, in the sporting world. So for me, when I when I talk about cross training initiatives, it's much more about getting athletes out of pattern overload not finding a similar means of reinforcing the imbalances they may already have. So telling a pitcher to go swim is like encouraging a distance runner with a you know a bum Achilles to go jump rope instead. You know, it can be a, a massive failure waiting to happen because you're just reaffirming a lot of the inherent imbalances that are caused become of the sport. So I think if you're going to swim, um, you know, I think you need to find a variety of different activities. Don't just do freestyle all the time. Because when it really comes down to it, I'd rather have guys actually throwing if they're going to be developing imbalances. Um, pattern overload might as well give you improved motor control and te- technical precision in the context of your sport if it's actually going to increase your susceptibility to injury. Um, and, and also just more anecdotally, while you know we'll see some swimmers who are absolutely incredible athletes in the pool, um, most of the swimmers I've, I've encountered you know on dry land training they tend to be less athletic on solid ground uh, presumably because the majority of their training takes place in the water so it's a little bit of 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 bias there Um, but the stability bands are markedly different in the pool so i'd much rather see supplemental baseball training take place in closed chain motion you know feet on the ground um you know just like it does in pitching so you know what does all this mean that the take home from me is I'm not against it. It just needs to be implemented uh, correctly. So if you're going to do it, keep your intensity low, use a variety of strokes, not just freestyle, and don't let it ever force out quality throws. Don't let the intensity creep up or, you know, kind of its its impact on that specific pattern that you get with freestyle. Don't ever let that force you to pull back on your throwing because I do think they are very, very different training initiatives. Um, and above all else, like anything new, if you're going to integrate it, just test the waters lightly. Don't go crazy with it. Go with limited volume, limited frequency, and just see how you respond to it and then see where it takes you. On to question two. And this actually comes from a junior college coach. Um, and he asked, one of my players was recently told he needed core muscle surgery. It seems like a broad term. Can you please enlighten me on what it is and what we could have done to prevent it? And why does it happen in baseball players? Um, I actually, this is an awesome question because you're right. It is a little bit of a garbage term, right? There are a lot of different core muscles that could be repaired. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about kind of the etiology, the industry injury, and then also, um, you know, why we see it in this population and what we can potentially do to, to work on it. So when you hear about core muscle surgery, what it's 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 there to to address is something called um, athletic pubalgia and and more commonly referred to as the sports hernia. Um, so effectively, this is very different than a classic hernia that we think about in you know a general population. Um, in reality, it's it's actually a, a, a muscular concern. So what happens is right on the front of your pubis, which is the the bottom part of your pelvis, you have this. Uh, basically this uh, fascial uh, structure called your adductor aponeurosis. And what it is, is it's a meeting point for your adductor longus, which is your most commonly strained groin muscle, which runs north-south, and your rectus abdominis, which also runs north-south. So effectively, it's your groin muscles competing with your abdominal muscles over what the pelvis is going to do. So your, your rectus abdominis, pulls superiorly and posteriorly, so up and back, 
while your adductor longus pulls down and forward. So um, anteriorly and, and inferiorly. And, and what we see a lot in these uh, athletic extension rotation sport folks is that the pelvis will often dump forward and they'll also sometimes lose range of motion in the frontal plane. So they won't be able to go side to side with as much freedom. So you have this, this effectively tug of war going on over the pelvis where the muscles on the bottom are very dense and fibrotic and nasty. Um, and you know, this can be particularly concerning if you've had someone who's had repeated groin strains and the tissue quality is just not nearly as good. Maybe they've lost some range of motion. Um, and then on the top, you have muscles that are effectively overstretched and just trying to keep pace to hold you in some semblance of a posterior pelvic tilt. So what happens in the sports hernia is either that rectus abdominis, that ab tendon pulls off or, um, and it pulls off because it's over lengthened, or you have um, a scenario where that, that tissue that's just really nasty on the bottom side, it may be short or just really, really dense, eventually pulls off. So, so muscles can kind of strain slash avulse for different reasons. Um, so you have one that elevates the pelvis, one that depresses the, the, the pelvis. Um, and what's interesting is they've actually done cadaveric studies where if you, if you cut the rectus abdominis uh, uh, tendon, it actually increases anterior tilt, not surprisingly, and you actually see more pressure in the adductor. So there's this amazing tug of war going on over the, over the pelvis. And, um, what you, I always liken it to is you, you have these on both sides, both right and left. So there's, there's kind of like four contributing factors. So I talk about kind of like the, the guide wires on a tent, right? If you were to cut one of those, the forces are distributed all over the pelvis totally differently. So what we often see with athletes who have, you know, chronic sports hernias that maybe aren't repaired or, or ones that are waiting repair, whatever it may be, they often wind up with low back pain. They may have hip issues. And it's just because their, their lumbopelvic stability, um, and motor control strategies are, are just really, really all over the place. So, you know, the question then becomes, what do we do to take care of this? Um, so I'm going to answer it in kind of two parts. The first thing is, Obviously, we need to do exercises that help athletes to posteriorly tilt the pelvis. So your, your classic anterior core exercises um, that are done with correct technique, instead of doing your stability ball routes with your low back arched like crazy, having a semblance of posterior tilt to really stabilize um, you know, the front side of your core. So if, if you are interested, I have a, a product called Understanding and Coaching the Anterior Core, which, which outlines a lot of exercises and, and how we attack them, but also some low level, uh, motor control exercises just to understand how to get posterior pelvic tilt, you know, from, from good hamstrings activation and a lot of like the 90 90 or hook line positions like we use. Um, and then also, you know, doing you know, your classic glute activation stuff because the glutes do assist in posteriorly tilting the pelvis. So that speaks to some of the motor control stuff that you want to do to hold the pelvis in a little bit more posterior tilt. But we also need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, on the front and the bottom aspect of that is we have, we have tissues that, you know, basically will pull people into more dysfunction. So doing more initiatives for tissue length through the adductors, the groin, the hip flexors, basically just preserving adequate quality hip extension. Um, and then also, you know, stretching the groin. So those, those mu muscles that attach on that pelvis, you want to make sure that they have good extensibility. So spending a lot of time on that is important. What is a very important consideration there as well is that we, we know that where those uh, adductor tendons insert on the bottom of the 
of the pubis is is really in a in, shall we say uncomfortable area for athletes um and it's something that they often are maybe a little bit less likely to ask for soft tissue work because they've they've got to move the the family jewels off to the side while basically uh you know someone's scraping or you know doing some kind of um you know pin and stretch technique or something like that so you just need to be mindful of athletes when they're you know doing their foam rolling or some kind of self myofascial release for the adductors that they have to get all the way up to the pelvis along the inside of the thigh so that's a really important consideration building on this i think it's really important to consider the asymmetrical nature of not only baseball players but really humans in general we do have an anatomical predisposition to asymmetry we aren't built you know perfectly symmetrically if you think about it you've got a heart on one side you got a vena cava on that side there's a liver on the opposite side your your right and your left brains do different things you have three lobes in one lung two in the other so we aren't built symmetrically and there is a little bit of a bias towards being shifted into right hip adduction so adduction um and this is something that if you really think about it, most people get stuck in right hip adduction when they're driving in the car. Um, if you look at any shortstop in a major league baseball game, they almost always, you know, stand with their hips shifted out. Um, so a lot of right-handed people living in a right-handed world, playing a right-hand dominant sport on top of normal asymmetry that kind of shifts up into this pattern makes us realize that, that people are probably much more predisposed to having these core muscle injuries, these sports hernias, um, you know, on the right side, because the adductor on that side is inherently more shortened because they're stuck in adduction. Um, and this is where I think it's super important for, for anybody that works in this world to familiarize themselves with the Posture Restoration Institute. Um, some of the teachings in that regard have been really, really impactful for us, just learning how to get out of that right hip and, and shift into the left hip. Um, there's also obviously some performance benefits on top of it, but, you know, I think a comprehensive program to prevent sports hernias is a function of, you know, quality core control, postural awareness, just doing exercises in the weight room correctly, good manual therapy initiatives, classic mobility exercises, and also just being mindful of not allowing asymmetry to become excessive. Now, you know, we can't have this discussion without also talking about, you know, there's, a, there's an element of differential diagnosis with this, meaning that, you know, just because you have pain, you know, down in your lower abdomen or upper groin or something like that, there, there could be a number of other things, right? It could be everything from referred pain from the hip joint. Um, it could be capsular irritation at the front of the hip. Um, and heck, it could be, you know, a tumor. So these are all things that really need to be screened out. Um, and usually the place that I refer folks to when they're, they're looking for someone who can help is I'll look, look for the nearest NHL team doctor, just because sports hernias are, are really, really common um, in the hockey community. So, you know, chances are if you have a, a really good hip specialist who's worked with NHL folks, that's the place where I'm going to go to get a, a quality diagnosis. Um, and then you kind of go from there. But, you know, just keep in mind, sports hernia, very different than, than, a, than a traditional, you know, inguinal hernia. Um, and the other thing that I would just add to this, and, and this has evolved over the years, but where these surgeries are unique is that athletes are generally cleared for return to play really, really fast. Um, it's a, it's a repair, um, where they reattach, um, you know, that tendon to the pubis. Um, but it's different than like a rotator cuff repair or, or a Tommy John, like a UCL reconstruction is, um, it just seems like people are cleared to come back very, very quickly. So a lot of them will deal with, you know, scar tissue and, you know, maybe a little cranky in the short term. So I think, you know, historically, 
the return was too quick and now it's moderated a little bit. But back in the day, there were athletes that were coming back, you know, barely more than a month. And now it's, it's a couple months before they return from it. But just, you know, appreciate that anytime you're trying to reattach a tendon, um, you know, to a bone, there is a risk of re-rupture if you, if you progress them too quickly. So we just want to be careful about moving guys too quickly in the post-surgery period, uh, particularly if, you know, it's, it's a scenario where whoever's rehabilitating them, um, hasn't seen a lot of these, um, really important to lean on, on, you know, quality physicians and physical therapists who have a lot of experience in this realm. We interrupt this podcast with a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by AG1. It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement that features 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily myself and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer of 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. AG1 gives you peace of mind that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you'll get that special offer. Our third and final question of this installment comes from another uh, college coach, this time from a pitching coach. And he asks, I have a pitcher whose velocity is down. His delivery doesn't look off and he hasn't lost weight. He's a real go-getter. So I honestly think he might be overtrained. What do you do in these situations? Um, you know, there's a, there's a quick answer to this, but I think podcasts always make for a little bit of a better opportunity to explore things in a little more depth. And I think this is a great time to do it. So first we need to, to wrap our head around what overtraining is. And it'll be a little bit of wordplay, but bear with me as I think these are really important differentiations to make. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit fortunate here is that I went to the University of Connecticut for my grad degree in the early 2000s. And two of my professors, um, Dr. Larry Armstrong and Dr. Jackie Van Heest, who were absolutely brilliant, actually co-authored, um, you know, what's known as one of the classic reviews on overtraining syndrome. The, uh, the, the official title is the unknown mechanism of overtraining syndrome. And they discussed the importance of differentiating among overload, overreaching and overtraining, and then the overtraining syndrome. Um, and they define these as follows. So I'm going to read these, but I think it's important for you to appreciate so overload is a planned, systematic, progressive increase in training stimuli that is required for improvements in strength, power, and endurance, right? That's an inherent part of the training process. Every time you push athletes in practices, um, weight training, anything like that, you're, you're trying to create an adaptation and that requires overload. You've got to do something that's unfamiliar to the body in order to create an adaptation where it comes back better than it was. So second, you have overreaching. So that's training that involves a brief period of overload with inadequate recovery that exceeds the athlete's adaptive capacity. This process involves a temporary performance decrement lasting from several days to several weeks, right? So that's when we talk a little bit about like a high-low model. So if you look at like what we might do in the offseason with a lot of our players you know, who throw Tuesday, Friday bullpens is that we might push them pretty hard Monday, Tuesday, um, you know, Monday being more like sprint movement stuff, play catch. And then Tuesday, they're going to throw a bullpen and get in a really, you know, hard lift. And then Wednesday might be lighter. And then we kind of do something similar on, on Friday after, uh, you know, a brief down period in the middle of the week and then push them hard into Saturday so that they can have another day off on Sunday. So instead of just overload within the session, we're talking about overreaching in, in you know, a couple days that, you know, effectively, you know, requires a few days of down um, regulation over the next couple of days. And so building on that, they talk about overtraining, which is training that exceeds overreaching and results in frank physiological maladaptations and chronically reduced exercise performance. It proceeds from imbalances between 
training and recovery, exercise and exercise capacity, stress and stress tolerance. The training exceeds recovery, the exercise exceeds one's capacity, and the stressors exceed one's stress tolerance. So effectively, this is where overreaching goes too far, right? This is where you know, a coach goes crazy trying to build mental toughness and he's waking people up at the crack of dawn, um, making them do double or triple sessions with an insane amount of volume of exercise that may be unfamiliar to them, right? Like a lot of the classic cases of um, rhabdo that we've seen in, you know, in various exercise communities and college, you know, uh, athlete training, anything like that. It's usually because some kind of crazy initiative was thrown on top of chronically high volume in unfamiliar exercises and you see people get into trouble. Um, and then overtraining syndrome becomes a set of persistent physical and physiological symptoms that occur subsequent to prolonged application of heavy training loads. The critical diagnostic factor is a cr chronic decrease in performance, not simply the existence of signs and symptoms. So what all this means is, is really that overload is inherent to a successful training process and overreaching is actually quite valuable when you use it appropriately. We use overload and overreaching every single week at Cressy Sports Performance. And I'm confident that most of the people who are on this podcast who, you know, challenge athletes to be better in any way do exactly the same. And, you know, I, I, talked about, you know, our training programs fluctuate training stress both within the week and over the course of a month. These are just different ways to implement overreaching. However, we have to appreciate that overreaching is far from overtraining, right? That's a term that's thrown around far too often among even the most qualified individuals in the world of health and human performance. So overreaching can, you know, take place in as little as, you know, two to 10 days and really remedied in a matter of days or weeks with, with appropriate deloading. Conversely, the process of overtraining has to take place over months for the outcome, which is overtraining syndrome to be apparent. So recovery from overtraining syndrome requires at least several weeks, more often several months. So in other words, you really have to go out of your way to truly get to overtraining syndrome. Since high-level performance and even just normal physical health is a priority um, for everybody, not just athletes, um, you know, I think it's imperative that coaches, parents, athletes, they all recognize the symptoms and the signs of overreaching and overtraining syndrome and the difference between the two. So, you know, in this review, Armstrong and Van Hees talked about the symptoms being not just a decrease in physical performance, but a general fatigue or loss of vigor, insomnia, change in appetite, irritability, restlessness, excitability, anxiety, loss of body weight, loss of motivation, lack of mental concentration, feelings of depression, you know, these are all things that when you really talk about overtraining, these are in play. Um, they're not necessarily in play just when a pitcher goes from 90 to 87 because his arms hanging after one outing that went a little bit further, you know, in excess of, of what he was able to handle. Or, you know, he was got in a fight with his girlfriend and, you know, had a final exam that stressed him out or something like that. So more often than not, what, what folks are really um, dealing with is, is overreaching and, and it may not even be inherent to the training process. It may be something that's taking place because of poor recovery initiatives or, you know, lack of sleep, things along those lines. So, you know, to come back to the question though, um, you know, many of the signs and symptoms are shared between overreaching and overtraining syndrome. So how do we know the difference? How do we know when to hold back for a day or two to recover from overload slash overreaching? How do we know to to hold back for a little bit longer if, if it's a more significant overreaching? And how do we know to pull back for even months if someone's really in a tough spot? Um, and unfortunately, as much as I would like to be able to offer you the magic answer, I can't do so because the scientific community really has yet to agree on a single 
you know, highly sensitive diagnostic tests to differentiate among the three. And in fact, the only diagnostic tests that are universally uh, accepted and accurate are those of physical performance. And what that means is simply that if performance drops off, there may be some degree of accumulated fatigue. Other measures, things like heart rate, blood work, metabolic rate, substrate metabolism, and a host more are subject to so many factors that they're hardly reliable tests of one's training status. So as an example, there was a really cool study, I believe it was done at the University of Memphis from, from Fry and colleagues. They had subjects perform 10 sets of one repetition on machine squats at 100% of their one rep max for 14 days straight. That's, that's an insane volume of high intensity resistance training, particularly in a trained population. And you know what's fascinating about that study? The only thing that dropped off was performance. Uh, meanwhile, hormone status as measured by their blood work really didn't change much at all. And you would expect that these, these folks are getting beat up in the weight room for two weeks straight, that, you know, their testosterone to cortisol ratios are going to drop. There's going to be really significant changes in the blood work, but it just didn't happen so acutely. The only thing that fell off was their performance. So conversely, you, you take an endurance athlete and you crush them with a lot of volume, mileage and mileage and mileage, and the same blood work will look terrible. Um, the take-home point that it's a lot harder to overtrain on intensity than it is on volume. And that's where the problem exists when you're dealing with athletes. Just, just about every sport out there is a blend of volume and intensity. We don't just train or rehabilitate shot putters or Ironman competitors. We get athletes from soccer, basketball, baseball, hockey, tennis, and a host of other sports. You know, pitchers who might throw once every five to seven days are going to be dramatically different in many cases from the center fielder that goes out and is there six or seven days in a row on his feet and covering a, a ton of, um, you know, yardage in terms of backing up right and left, playing center, legging out infield singles, stealing bases, all that stuff. Catchers who are in a deep squat position for an extended period of time actually accumulate way more mileage than we would expect just from backing up first base. So, um, you know, really it's very, very hard to, to figure out what's right for everybody. And I think baseball is particularly challenging because it isn't a crazy endurance sport. Um, it's a lot of high intensity outputs. Um, you know, in many cases, they're spaced out over an extended period of time. So at the end of the day, what's a coach or rehab specialist going to do when they want to determine just how much fatigue is present and what the best course of action is to guarantee a good, you know, safe training protocol as well as return to play scenarios as quickly as possible? So in two words, the answer is ask questions. In my opinion, the absolute most important step is to establish communication with athletes. And in this case, you know, patients, if we're talking about the rehab realm, but ask about training practices before an injury, ask about sleep patterns, dietary factors, family life, any concurrent illness or injury, changes in medication, changes in body weight, um, does appetite go down? So when you see a pitcher that's struggling with lower velo, you don't want to just look at the delivery. You want to actually, you know, dig in deeper on everything that could take place. And they might seem like obvious questions to ask, but we also live in a one-size-fits-all world of pre-made templates and rigid systems. And People can fall through the cracks, particularly if coaches have their inherent biases, right? You want to look to the, you know, the track man data to, to hopefully give you the answers you want. And in many cases, it's, it's a much bigger picture discussion. So my experience has been that the most commonly thrown under the bus in this regard are the most dedicated athletes who are forced to train or rehabilitate in a, in a general health world. So as an example, you know, we had an adult client who requested a vitamin D test from their primary care physician a few years ago. And he was turned down because, quote, he wasn't a, a postmenopausal female. As it turns out, he was severely clinically deficient and normalizing his vitamin D status was a game changer for him, both in terms of, you know, musculoskeletal uh, kind of discomfort, but also just energy and vitality. So 
all this comes back to simply asking the right questions will always help the cause when it comes to determining just how systemic what you're dealing with really is. And in the process, it gives you an opportunity to show, you know, that athlete, you know, or if you're in the rehab realm, a patient, how much you care, um, you know, just about leaving no stone unturned and helping them. And what's cool about today's, you know, world of research is that people are catching on about how much we can impact um, the bounce back from overreaching favorably, right? There's, there's research that shows that sleeping fewer than six hours the night prior to a competition led to a significant increase in fatigue related injuries. The research at Stanford showed that there was a you know, profoundly positive effect that sleep extension has on a, a variety of performance variables in high level basketball athletes. So, these results in themselves aren't super surprising. Fatigue impacts performance. I don't think that's a, a leap of faith for everyone to say. Um, but I think it's, it's particularly helpful just because we can also apply it to, you know, basically reducing the likelihood of shifting from an overreaching to an overtraining in some of our athletes. When we have this research to draw on, it's not just about pulling people out of it. It's about being proactive with educating people on what they can do to, to avoid slipping too far down um, a bad path. Um, and, and really what it comes down to is that, that not all fatigue is created equal. Um, I suspect this is probably one area where strength and conditioning specialists can return the favor to the rehabilitation world um, for all that we've learned from them over the years. And, um, you know, and if you look at the best strength and conditioning coaches, I know are the ones who are absolute masters of managing competing demands, things like strength training, mobility work, soft tissue work, movement training, metabolic conditioning, and then obviously the sport specific training. In order to effectively manage all these factors, it's imperative to understand the, the different stages of fatigue. And on the rehabilitation side of things, every injured athlete likely has some element of fatigue that not only impacted his or her injury mechanism, but will impact the response to a given rehabilitation program. So we all need to understand where sports science fits in, um, you know, how fatigue monitoring fits in, and, and then certainly how far down that fatigue rabbit hole we are. So to come back to your question, one of the things that I'll often do when I see someone who's you know, velocity is, is down, um, you know, over a, over a shorter period of time, obviously, um, knowing that they're healthy and, you know, you've checked all these other boxes of, um, you know, the delivery looks good and, you know, they're, they're, they're in a good place other than that. So one of the things that I'll do when I, when I expect that I suspect that maybe they're just acutely overreached is I'll tell them, Hey, just, just take three days off from throwing. Um, you know, that's, that's something that can typically be handled a lot easier, obviously in the, the high school and the college ranks, but get three days off from throwing get to bed as early as you possibly can, eat a ton of healthy foods, just kind of hyper recover and remove any kind of, um, you know, aggressive training stimulus for just a short period of time and then see if they come back from it feeling recharged. Like I know I'm age 42. When I take a few days off, I actually come back feeling like I'm pretty stiff and, and I miss out on the mobility aspect of it, just the general blood flow. And so I, I don't like as many consecutive days off. But in the younger ages, they do seem to respond pretty well to full days off in terms of coming back recharged. Um, so it's worth, you know, something that you could, you could try out to, to see if they bounce back pretty quickly and then go from there. But again, all of it starts with conversations with the athletes because chances are when you do deeper digging, um, you're going to find some of those solutions. Um, again, thank you all for your questions. Um, some good stuff today, some good discussion points, and definitely like to do these every couple months. So if you have more um, inquiries, you can fire them into elite baseball podcast at gmail.com. 
and we will happily try to include it on the show. We'd also love it if you'd consider reviewing us on, on iTunes. Um, you know, we, we definitely uh, do this as a labor of love and, and appreciate all the, uh, the, the support that we've gotten with questions and things like that. But if you could also show us some love on iTunes with your reviews, what you like uh, about the show, um, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much.